Before we get started, I'd like to ask if you would join me in a word of prayer. Lord, as the psalmist wrote, we give thanks to you, for you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. And so, Lord, let all the redeemed of the Lord say so. We have gathered this day to worship and rejoice over the one who has redeemed us from all our sins. And we're grateful that our God has gathered to himself those who were far from him. We thank you, Lord, for satisfying our souls through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for giving us your spirit and your word. We thank you for calling us to unite with this church where we can experience fellowship, accountability, where we can serve, and where we can be equipped to be salt and light in this world. And now, Lord, we pray for all those who are suffering in Morocco. We're told this morning that over 2,000 people have died and more than 2,000 others have been injured after this earthquake shook that historic city of Marrakesh. So, Father, we pray that you would comfort the injured and those who have lost loved ones. Heal the minds and bodies of those who have been terrorized by this most unexpected disaster. We pray for successful rescue efforts of those who are alive but trapped. And we pray for the recovery of bodies so that families can give their loved ones a proper burial. And we know that Morocco is a country that's predominantly Muslim. But we also know there are believers there. And so we ask not only that you would protect your children, but that you would empower them to be a gospel witnesses to their Muslim neighbors. Father, you have enabled us through the gift of salvation through your Son to bless your name this morning. Help us to do so with all knowledge and thanksgiving. Let our worship be born of a humble and a happy heart for all that you've done. We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. As you are opening your copy of the Scriptures to John chapter 7, verse 53, or if it's easier, John chapter 8, I want to ask you if you've ever found yourself in a situation where, whether it was on a sports team, or whether it was in a classroom, or maybe it was in your home as you were growing up, where somebody did something wrong and everybody was going to suffer for it. Have you ever... Raise your hand if you've ever been there. Am I the only one that was raised by such horrible parents? I, Mom and Dad, I love you. You know that. <clears throat> I remember on uh, one occasion, there was a confession that was being extracted by torture within our home, and no one would give in to the rack, and so we were all punished. I remember another time in, in high school um, during basketball practice, Uh, A play wasn't run correctly, so the coach made all of us run our blood and guts. Um, All these sprints, you know, baseline to the free throw and back, and then to the three-point line and back, and then to midcourt and back, and then to the next one and back. And and you did that until he just got tired of seeing you run. I remember running in college with our soccer team because of something similar. There was a behavioral problem, and so we were all going to run it out and get it out of our system. Now, I don't know if that's justice. I kind of tend to think, no. It may be effective in building unity. I mean, the military, right? 
we, we hear stories of them doing such things that uh, where one goes, we all go, and uh, the whole unit will suffer for the stupidity or ignorance of one person, and it's supposed to build camaraderie. Let me just tell you, in a family, that doesn't work. I wasn't in the military, so I don't know. But I, I kind of feel like that sense of injustice is somewhat at play in our text this morning. So if you're there in John chapter 8, um, we see a passage of Scripture here that is really unique. So I'm going to read it, and I ask if you would follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. We're going to begin in chapter 7, verse 53, and we're going to work our way this morning through chapter 8 and verse 11. So please hear the word of the Lord. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. and May he write its truths upon our hearts. If you were paying attention, you might have seen in your copy of the scriptures some kind of brackets around this passage or some kind of asterisk, a footnote as it were. And there is a lot of question about whether or not this is indeed supposed to be a part of John's gospel. Knowing that Christianity is attacked and often questioned as being the Scriptures being a construct of, of man rather than divinely authored by God, knowing that there's questions about discrepancies in the, in the Bible, such as this one, I feel like it is on us. We have a burden to say and answer why this passage has been marked out the way it has. Your copy of the Scriptures may say something to the effect of, this passage doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. It may even say this passage was later added to the Gospel of John. Some think that it was better suited for Luke's Gospel. So what are we to make of this? I mean, should this even be in our Bibles? And does this make us all wonder if, in fact, our Bibles are true? So we have been going through this book of the Gospel of John for some time now. And I, I, I want to give you a little bit of an academic lesson first just to address this thing before we get into the actual text itself, all right? So 
the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, the earlier and older they are, the more valuable they are. And the reason for that is because they were copied by hand. And so, therefore, the newer or the older, I should say, the older the writing, the more close it is to the originals. And that means if they were being handwritten, can you imagine writing in the first century? And then someone is copying that over and over and over again. By the time you get to the 20th century, you could expect there would be all kinds of flaws in that translation as it was copied from one person to one person. And so you work it in reverse, and the older you get, the closer you get to that original author, the more likely it is to be correct. They took painstaking care there. We call these early manuscripts the uncial manuscripts. They were often written in capital letters. And we base the text of the New Testament on the earliest ones, which date from the 4th to the 6th century. So 300s to the 600s. The fact is that out of all these early manuscripts, this story only occurs in one. And that manuscript is not the best quality manuscript that we have. Six of them omit it completely to leave a blank where it should come. It's not until we transfer from Latin to Greek and the medieval manuscripts that we find this story, and even then it's often marked to show that it's questionable. Now, that just made you wonder if your Bible is trustworthy. Hang with me, okay? Another source of our knowledge of the New Testament is what are called versions. So, the, the translations from Latin uh, or Greek. So, this story, we don't see it in the early Syriac version. We don't find it in the Coptic or Egyptian version. Nor is it in some of the early Latin versions. Now, here's the truth, all right? I'm not hiding anything. The early church fathers seemed not to know much about it. They never mentioned it or comment on it. And these are guys like Origen, Chrysostom, Theodore, uh, Cyril of Alexandria. And, and on the Greek side, they don't mention it either. The first time we see it appear in a Greek testament is in 1118. It's a long time after Jesus walked the earth. So where does this story come from? If it's not in the earliest of texts, why is it in our text? Here's why. We're told that one of uh, the early church fathers, a guy named Jerome, knew about this in the 4th century. He included it in the Latin Vulgate. We know that Augustine and Ambrose both knew of it, for they comment on it. We know and we see it in later manuscripts, and it's to be noted that its position varies a great deal. Some put it here, some put it at the fourth, at the end of John's gospel. Others insert it in Luke's gospel after chapter 21 and verse 38. But here's something surprising. We can trace this story even further back than the fourth century. It's quoted in a third century book called the New Apostolic Constitutions where it is given as a warning to bishops who are too strict. Eusebius, the church historian, says that Papias, one of the early church fathers who was there during the time of John the Apostle, speaks of a woman who was accused of many sins before the Lord. So here's a man who lived really close to Jesus' time, and he speaks of this story. So here are the facts. This particular story 
Although it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts, it can be traced as far back as the early 2nd century when Jerome produced the Vulgate. He included it. The later manuscripts and the medieval manuscripts, they all have it, and yet none of the great manuscripts, those uncials, contain it. So what's the explanation? Well, we don't have to be afraid that our Bibles are flawed or imperfect and that this story should not be in them. In fact, I think it guarantees what we see from history, the fact that this story was being talked about around the year 100 proves its genuineness. The story is real. These events very, very likely did take place. So why is it in none of the great manuscripts? Here's a cultural thing that you may not be aware of. Augustine gives us a hint. He says that the story was removed from the text of the gospel because some were of slight faith, and it was removed to avoid scandal. Now, we don't know for certain, but it would seem that in the very early days of the church, people who edited the New Testament thought this was a dangerous story because it would seem as though it says, commit adultery, no big deal. You see why this would be a bad thing? Why this would be a scary thing? It seemed to justify a very light view of adultery. The Christian church in its early days was an island in the sea of paganism. Its members were so apt to relapse into a way of life that they had come from where chastity was unknown, and they were so open to pagan infection. We see it even in the New Testament with Paul's writings in Corinthians, with what we see in Galatians and other epistles, the book of Revelation. So there was a fear that this text would actually encourage Christians to sin with impunity, to believe that it's no big deal to be unfaithful to your spouse. And so it was removed. But as time went on, the danger grew less and less, and the story which had always circulated by word of mouth and which one manuscript retained, it came back. Now, I'll be honest, with what I have read and studied, it's not likely that it is in the right place where it originally was, but I think it was inserted here to make a point. So let's get back to our text, and I'll show you what I mean. If you remember from last week in John chapter 7, Jesus urged in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And I think this was inserted here in John's gospel to uh, kind of bolster this argument that Jesus is making, that we are to judge rightly. In John eight fifteen, as we will see next week, Jesus speaks of, I judge no man. And so these two statements on judgment kind of work together, and this passage then becomes an appropriate addition here. Although we don't see it in the early manuscripts, we can be sure that this is a real story about Jesus and a story that is so gracious that for a long time men were afraid to tell it. Here's another example of knowing that it probably didn't originally fall here. We already read through the passage, and you might remember that the, the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to trap Jesus, which seems a bit different from what we just read in chapter 7, where they were clearly trying to kill him and made no bones about it. 
Why would the people who have repeatedly in chapter 7 trying to kill Jesus, trying to arrest him, why would they go back to something that had already been proven? Trapping him in his words, we see that he violated the, the Sabbath on, in chapter 5 by healing a man on it. So it doesn't flow with the text, but it does help make an argument that the text makes. So let's, let's dig into this. What do we see in this passage? Well, we see that early in the morning, Jesus came into the temple. And this was a pattern of Jewish teachers to show up in the big common area of the temple. And as people would come in, they would kind of rally around their teacher. And there was just open dialogue and conversation Students would ask questions and teachers would answer them. Teachers would expound some passage of Scripture or they would give an argument related to some current topic or issue of that day. This was the marketplace, as it were, of ideas. And so it is not unusual that Jesus should be here, but it is surprising given that chapter 7 says there were such uh, threats upon his life that he went up to the feast late. The scribes and the Pharisees were told in verse 3, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they placed her in the midst. So Jesus is teaching, and they make a parade out of this woman, and they place her right in front of all the people that had sat down to hear Jesus teach, or all the people that were standing there. They, in fact, surround this woman. It's an intimidating scene, to be sure. We're told that she was caught In the act, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say, they ask? Please understand their use of teacher is is more characteristic, again, of what we would see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John's gospel, the only ones that call Jesus teacher are his own disciples. But what do you say? It's intended, and the the writer, the narrator, tells us in verse 6, that they said this to him to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So it's not a sincere question. They aren't earnest in learning something. What they're doing here is laying a trap. And what is so grievous is they are using this woman caught in this shameful act as bait. Does that show you the heart of a leader, a teacher of God's word? Does that show you the heart of a follower of Jesus? So they are not interested in truth. They are only trying to trip Jesus up. Whether it be the law of the Moses that he would stand in contrast with, uh, he's already broken the Sabbath, as we saw in chapter 5. He's already appealed to the law in his own defense over in chapter 7, and he'll do so again later in in chapter 8. They would very much like to trip Jesus up in his words on something other than the Sabbath principle. Perhaps Jesus made his argument so well that you would circumcise a boy on the Sabbath, but I've made a a man his whole body well on the Sabbath, and you find fault with that. So now they're trying a new tactic. What's interesting to me is if you go back to the law, in which providentially I happen to be reading through the book of Deuteronomy in my Bible reading, and in chapter 17, here's, here's an interesting instruction. It's amazing to me that the scribes and the Pharisees brought this case to Jesus' attention because the law actually required that they were to bring it to the priests in the temple. 
If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, or one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault or another, or any case within your towns that's too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. That's the temple in Jerusalem. You shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord chooses. Yet they didn't do that. So again, we're confronted with the fact that the religious elites are in their own actions and in their own words, lawbreakers. This is an important point that repeatedly surfaces in John's gospel. As far as they are concerned, there's only one right answer to their questions. The stoning should proceed as it was required of in the law. Their intention was flawed because according to the biblical law that we see in Deuteronomy, the man and the woman were to be brought. Was there any man mentioned in our text? No, there's not. They drug this woman out to embarrass and shame her in public. But if she's caught in the very act, she was not alone. Where is this guy? Is he just faster at getting out the window than she was? Well, what are we to make of this? In many societies around the world in today's day and in the ancient days, when it comes to sexual sins, here's the truth, the ugly truth. Women were much more likely to be in legal and social jeopardy than their lovers. There's a double standard. The man could lead a, quote, respectable life while masking the same sexual sins with a knowing wink. Jesus' simple condition without calling into question the Mosaic law, cuts through the double standard and drives hard to reach the conscience. And what does he say? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her in verse 7. He refuses to allow this woman uh, to be disadvantaged. And yet he ignores their sin in not bringing the man with her. Again, Jesus demonstrates that he has an ability to see beyond and above all this. If Jesus were to say, well, Moses was wrong, guess what happens? He's in the temple, and immediately his credibility is gone. He would be dismissed as a lawless person. His appeals to the law have actually said, I've actually fulfilled the law to a higher standard than you guys are. This is the true intent of the law, to do good on the Sabbath, not to withhold doing good to those that need it. But if Jesus were to say, don't stone this woman for her sin, he would clearly be labeled as a lawbreaker. If he upheld the law of Moses, he would not only be supporting a position that was largely unpopular, but one that was probably not carried out in public life during that time. It would have been a hard message for him to square with his ministry model of being a compassionate teacher, someone who is, has a care and a concern for the broken and the people of poor repute. He seems to be quick to forgive and restore, and, and he keeps announcing this life-transforming power that's bound up within the new birth, but then now he's going to lay down the law in a hard way. You see the trap that they've set for Jesus? Either you are all about doing wrong and you don't care, 
or you are a lawbreaker and uh, you're going to violate Moses. Some even think that if Jesus agreed with Moses' law and this interpretation, it would get him in trouble with the Romans who had the power over life and death at that time in Jerusalem. Well, we're told, as I said already, verse 6, that their question is not a sincere one. They're deceitfully trying to entrap Jesus. And his response is quite surprising, isn't it? I mean, what would you imagine Jesus to do? It's certainly your first thought wouldn't be he bends down and starts tracing something in the dust of the temple floor. And yet that's what he does. And there is this dramatic gesture which would have certainly caused everyone there to lean in. What in the world is going on? It may be worth noting that Jesus elsewhere uses the image of the finger of God in Luke eleven twelve twenty 20 to refer to his exercise of divine authority. It was, we remember from the book of Exodus, it was the finger of God that wrote the law on the, on the stone tablets at Sinai. And I know everybody's eager to know, what was Jesus writing? Was it merely graffiti on the temple floor? Was he putting a gang sign out there? No, okay. Here's a lot of ideas, and I'm going to preface every single one of them by saying, I could not even mention them, and we would not miss out on anything, because this is all guessing. There's no record of what Jesus wrote. Did he write the sins of the men around him? Was he writing scripture verses like what we might read in Jeremiah 17, 13? Those who turn away from you will be written in dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Maybe Jesus was imitating the practices of the Roman magistrates who first wrote out their sentence before reading it. Another suggestion is that the first time Jesus stooped down, he wrote, Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness, Exodus 23. Or the second time he wrote, have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty, the Lord says in Exodus 23. The truth is, we don't know what Jesus wrote or if he even wrote anything. It simply says that he traced his finger on the ground. And whatever he wrote, it doesn't influence the account because essentially his response is a non-answer to these men. As verse 7 makes it clear, he's doodling in the dirt and they are continuing to ask him, what will you say about this matter? How soon should we start gathering stones to judge this woman? And he remains silent, yet they keep on questioning him. And finally, when he stands up and he says these words in verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the very first to throw a stone at her. This is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 13 in verse 9. His words actually presuppose that this woman has already been tried and convicted. Jesus isn't saying she is not guilty of sin. In fact, it seems that he knows that she's already been processed through the legal system, and he's simply saying, let the witness of the crime, as the law requires, be the very first person to throw a stone at her. And they 
and those that are without sin, let's unpack this for a moment because you, you've heard this before, I'm assuming, uh, that, that favorite verse that's quoted against Christians for their uh, looking down their nose at unbelievers or their uh, very high and lofty view of themselves, and it's judge not, lest ye be judged, right? We're told that we're not supposed to say that someone is doing something wrong. In fact, that is to be judgy. What Jesus is saying is the one who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, isn't saying, he's not talking about sinlessness as what later Christian theology will teach that Jesus is the sinless one. Right? We believe that Jesus was without sin, and therefore, because he lived a perfect life, his death on the cross fully atones for all our sins because he was the perfect, sinless substitute where his righteousness somehow is imputed and imparted to us, and our sin debt is wiped clear, and instead we are granted full righteous standing in the eyes of the Father because of the righteousness of the Son. This is what we believe here at South Canyon. Jesus is not talking about that kind of sinlessness. Here's the kind of sinlessness he's talking about. Because the law was written to whom? Perfect people or sinners? It was written to sinners. Jesus is ministering in the midst of perfect people or sinners? Sinners. And so the law to be followed has a caveat, has an opportunity for sinful people to do it. And here's, here's, here's where I'm getting at. Jesus is simply saying... If you weren't involved in this woman's sexual sin, but you witnessed it, then you have a legal responsibility to be the first person to cast a stone at her. It's not that you are perfect, and therefore, on that high and white ivory tower that you've been living up on, where no evil thought has ever crossed your mind and where your hand has never done anything you've regretted or your eyes looked upon anything that you've been grieved over or you've spoken an unkind word to anybody. He's not talking about that kind of sinlessness. He's simply saying, if you weren't involved in breaking the law in the manner in which she was, if you weren't in that moment, in that particular situation, then you are without sin. But you had to witness it. And therefore, as a witness, you had to bring about, be the first person to lay on this judgment. So Jesus is simply saying that there are, there's a responsibility here. Witnesses must be present. And Jesus is actually inviting them to do what the law requires. However, what Jesus is also implying in his words... Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That means the first person that throws a rock at this woman, according to the law, has to be a witness who was not involved in the act. And that also means that anybody who wasn't a witness to this has to wait. They're not to be involved in throwing the judgment at this time. Jesus is, is saying that if anyone who was not present when she was in the act and they picked up a stone in response to Jesus' words, they would be taking on themselves the role of a witness against the woman, which the law required integrity, and they would actually be contradicting the law. Jesus bent down a second time, we're told in verse 8. 
Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground, which seems to appear that Jesus has said all he's going to say on the matter. He's going to go back to his doodling. Whether he was making a dog or whether he was writing out sins against that they had committed or whether he was writing out the words of the law, whatever it was, Jesus has made it very clear by his actions, I'm done talking to you guys about this. Either, either the woman or her accusers will have to speak up because he has gone silent. Either they're going to continue to question him as they were in verse 7 or they will not. Either they will pick up stones to stone this woman or they will not. But this time, unlike verses 6 and 7, there are no more questions. And their actions of these scribes and these Pharisees speak more loudly than anything they could have said. Those who had heard went out one by one, beginning from the elders and working their way down. Verse 9 tells us that this is a scene that would have caught the attention of an eyewitness. What is taking place here is unparalleled in what most people have experienced. Every single one of these men who were part of this, dragging this woman out, embarrassing her, and asking Jesus to to litigate Moses' law, they all walk away quietly. The people who had questions have now been silenced. And Jesus, we're told in verse 9, was left alone with the woman standing before him. For the third time, he stands up. He said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Obviously, Jesus knew the answers to these questions. His address to her as woman is not seen as disrespectful in the Gospels. He uses this term even with his own mother. It's, it's, a, it's an address of respect. And she simply says, no one, Lord. Now, for those that may see this occasion as this woman having a come-to-Jesus moment, let me be quick to point out, there is nowhere in the text that we are told that the woman who has been caught in adultery, has at this time now come to believe in Jesus as her sin substitute. Nor do we know if she ever did. It may be that she did, but that is not the point of the story. When she acknowledges that no one has condemned her, and Jesus replies, neither do I condemn you, he is not so much pronouncing on this woman that you have received eternal salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. He's simply confirming that she does not deserve to die. He does not say, as he says in other gospel stories, O woman, great is your faith, or daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. He simply says, go. And he adds to it, From now on, sin no more. Recalling his words to the sick man we read about in chapter 5. Remember that? He finds him later in the temple and he says, Hey, don't sin anymore or something worse may happen to you. The implication was that that sinful man that Jesus healed in chapter 5 did not believe in Jesus. And the call was to don't keep sinning. There's no such implication in the case of the woman. The story is left open-ended. But as you look at verse 11, 
And she hears these words from Jesus, and he tells her, go and leave your life of sin. She, she is freed from the judgment that she rightly deserved. She is experiencing Jesus who says, neither do I condemn you. The confidence and the personal absoluteness of Jesus' words not only call to mind that Jesus came not to condemn but to save, but also prompts us to remember that Jesus has the right to forgive sin. This is a heavy theological truth. Jesus' first coming, he shows incredible grace and mercy to sinners because he's there to share the message of hope and reconciliation with God through him. But make no mistake, in his second coming, Jesus will come to bring judgment. And that's why it is incumbent upon us to hear passages like this and to wrestle with the claims of Jesus, that he alone has the power to forgive sin. How should we respond to such mercy? I mean, has it been that long since you remembered what a sinner you were? This isn't a church where every Sunday we try to, you know, beat people over the head and about the shoulders with past sins and make you feel horrible so that you go out feeling terrible. But there is a real truth to the Christian life that none of us can stand before the Father because of who we are, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And to not lose sight of the fact that we need the gospel, not just when we were three years old or five or 20 or last year, but we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We are sinners who have been saved by grace. And we ought to rejoice in that. And that ought to, receiving that kind of righteousness and undeserved favor ought to actually spur us on to doing more things for the one who's given us such great gifts. I mean, it's a poor analogy, but even the most ungrateful kid expresses some level of enthusiasm and gratitude for the, for the parent or the grandparent who's given them an extravagant gift. For a little while, you have their attention, and they'll be very keen to say how much they appreciate you. How much more should we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, be rejoicing over the one who has loved us and saved us? Now, we're done with the exposition of the passage. In the next couple minutes, I just want us to think about some application, all right? This passage has a lot to say to people who live in a sexually saturated environment. Sexual activity before marriage or outside of the marriage covenant is a fact of life in our day and age. People are unfaithful to our vows, and perhaps even some of us in this very room have done that. We need to see and hear the teaching of God's Word, that, that purity and holiness, that is the teaching of Scripture. That is what Christ is uh, ensuring through giving us His Spirit. This sexual revolution that we think of here in the States has spread all across Western and Third World countries. 
It used to be thought of that only the unbelievers did it, but that we Christians had gotten our act together. But the truth of the matter is that it even is in the church. We have to come to terms with a society where pressure is pushing us toward promiscuity. And those pressures are subtle, yet they're unrelenting. So let me plead with every Christian in this room this morning. Please, brother and sister, for the sake of the name, choose to abstain from every temptation that wars against your soul. Choose to resist those desires that want to draw you into sexual sins, whether they be physical actions or whether they be viewing pornography. Know this, that Christ has bought you with his own blood and he expects his bride to be holy and pure. The Christian norm is abstinence. It is not to engage in sexual activity of any kind until you are married and then and only then within the confines of that marriage. And yet what we see in this text is there is great grace demonstrated by our Savior Whether the woman believed in this moment or later, it's not the point. The point is for any Christian who's hearing my words, your sins have been forgiven, all of them. And for every non-Christian who's here today, thank you for coming and hear the earnestness of God's word. He wants you to know that all your sins can be forgiven if you would but trust in Jesus. It's surely a remarkable fact that the one who embodied divine holiness, the great I am of the Old Testament, has taken on flesh. And he is standing there in this temple. And he says to a woman who knows that she's done wrong, he, she's guilting, uh, her guilt has been proven, and he says, I do not condemn you. What relief that had to fill in her heart. How much so... How much more for each and every one of us who hear this today? Your sins, your secret sins. You think you're hidden away in a dark room. You think that you've covered all your passwords and your trails on the internet and deleted all the cookies and all the browser history. Your secret sins, whether they're in the school or behind the school or whether they're in your room or out with your friends at night, every one of them can be washed away if you turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. Cry out to Him. There is no greater wonder than this. The one who turned water into wine, the one who healed a dying boy simply by His word, the one who fed 5,000 and more with a snack lunch, the one who walked on a storm-tossed sea, none of these compares with what Jesus has said to this woman. I do not condemn you. Friend, if you, if you are in touch with the depravity of your own heart, these words are life. These words allow each and every one of us to get up and to shout praises to our God, to clap our hands to Him, to thank Him because He has shown such undeserved grace to us. Before we end, let me point out that Jesus instructed the woman to obey the law. Let's not for a moment be afraid as our predecessors were, our forefathers in the faith, that this would actually incite people to sin with impunity. No, Jesus says, I want you to stop sinning. You've received grace. 
And that grace is to change you in such a way that you don't want to go back to that polluted well. And Jesus makes that very clear. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a mistake to think that Jesus is unconcerned about the law or that her sin was no big deal. Although his forgiveness isn't based on her repentance, Jesus clearly sees that true repentance is the natural outcome of being forgiven. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. If you have been forgiven in Christ, how should you then live for Jesus? And if you haven't cried out to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then I simply ask you to do so. And you will find in him a friend who's closer than a brother, someone who knows you inside and out yet chooses to love you. You will find in him no condemnation. He emptied that cup for you. He bore the Father's wrath for you. Lord, we pray and we praise your name. We ask that you would give mercy abundantly. Even as we've seen it here in this text, we pray that there would be an understanding of this. There would be a heart longing to cry out for this mercy. That there would be within those who are in this room a desire to seek the Lord and to find the one who offers salvation and to not stop seeking until they are assured that their sins have been forgiven in Christ. We pray that you would keep your church pure. That we would see there is never an excuse for a Christian to abuse the grace of God. And yet for everyone who confesses their sins, there is the promise that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for preserving this story and for using it to teach us to judge with right judgment. May we not be simply people who name the name of Christ, throw it around for capital within this somewhat Christianized community, but may we truly be those who have been bought with the blood of Jesus, who rejoice in the grace and the mercy that you brought to us. We ask all this in the name of Christ our Lord, the one who is our peace with you. Amen.